Okay, so I'm a little wobbly. I've walked 15 miles today and uh, I just saw this old man with a walker like pushing himself into a busy street. And I was so tired and so morally desensitized by life in Los Angeles. I didn't even try to do anything. Like I'm afraid that I'm a bad man. Like if he wants to push his bloody walker you know, into a street filled with you know, whizzing traffic going by, like I was too tired and my bladder was too full to protest, right? I just like walked about five miles without any water. So I stopped, bought three liters of water for about three bucks. And drank it all down in the course of about 40 minutes. And uh, the power of situation, like normally, you know, the paragon of moral leadership, you know, you'd think that I would be doing the right thing. But uh, the bladder was too full. I was too tired. Okay. And uh, this Aussie shop girl came running out and said, you okay? So I, I, deferred, I deferred that moral task to someone else. But anyway, I see it on Twitter. Twitter's burning up because, you know, Kanye and you know, Nick Fuentes are meeting up. And like, it's Mar-a-Lago and it's like, you know, this great threat to, to Jews and to Western civilization. I don't think so, right? I don't think that Kanye and Nick, you know, get up in the morning and think about, you know, what can we do to the Jews today? I think this is really about people who have their own interests and they see their own group interests and they, they see that there are sacred groups and groups you can't criticize. And uh, you know, Nick Fuentes, he you know, loves Christianity, and so it's okay, normal, natural that he wants a particular type of America, but he you know, may have some negative feelings about Jews. Kanye, I'm pretty sure he's had a lot of experiences with Jews. And when you have intense relationships with people, or in the t case of Kanye, or in the case of Nick Fuentes, you know, when you have clashing group interests, then they express itself with some you know, negative sentiments towards Jews. So I just don't like the label Holocaust denier, you know, anti-Semite. Yeah, some of what Nick says is anti-Jewish. He has uh, mocked using religion, using the Holocaust as religion. What, what emanates the, animates these two guys more than their attitudes towards Jews is that they want to be famous. They want to be the, you know, the center of attention. They want to be edgy. They want to be exciting. And uh, Nick Fuentes and Milo Yiannopoulos and Kanye, they always like to be on the edge of what's new and exciting. And when you keep looking for that which is new and exciting, he often makes some really bad decisions. So Kanye's probably cost himself a billion dollars. Uh, Nick Fuentes, his life has become a nightmare in many ways. But uh, I don't think they're, they're getting together to plot genocide. Right? I, I don't think they're primarily getting together to how can we take down Jewish power.
These are two attention-seeking junkies. They're trying to stay relevant, trying to stay cutting edge. And I think that's that's dominant. Like for some people, you know, hatred of Jews is dominant. Or for other people, you know, hatred of blacks or gays is dominant. But for Kanye and Fuentes, just love of attention. Right? That's what's dominant. That's what's driving them. This is not the onesie conference. Right? They're not making plans for where they're going to ship the Jews off. This is not the end of Western civilization. This is not, you know, Donald Trump, you know, signing on with Kanye and Nick Fuentes and their evil plans against the Jews. These are people with you know, social media disease. Right? They just want to dominate the news cycle, the, the Twitter cycle. I love to have people talking about them. And they're willing to do absolutely crazy things to maintain that. Now, do I think that there are some genuine uh, Jewish skeptical, even anti-Jewish sentiments with Kanye and Nick? Absolutely. But I don't think that's what's dominant. Well, people are complicated. So, to the degree that uh, the Anti-Defamation League and Jewish organizations have come down like a ton of bricks on Kanye West and Kyrie Irving, and that also provokes a backlash. Right? It's not like looking at my other phone for, for directions. It's not like you can just attack people and there are going to be no consequences. Right, so the harder EDL and Jewish organizations come down on Kanye, Nick Fuentes and Kyrie Irving, the more of a backlash you're going to spark. So two people probably never thought about each other, <laughs> never felt like they had much in common. Well, now you've created a bond between them. So we've got two uh, fundamentally anti-social, social misfits, tension-hungry blokes who are getting together. And why are they so attention-hungry? Because these are misfits. These are people who can't they maintain relations in real life. But uh, they get fed from social media. talked about being in the news, you know, compelling people's attention. And so I thought the response to Kyrie Irving in particular was disproportionate. Now, Kyrie, Kanye, Nick, they both made their own beds. Right? They're not innocent victims who are just you know, being maligned for, for no reason whatsoever. Sometimes when you crack down on people, the backlash that you cause is going to be even even greater than the original problem. So, great job, ADL. You may have uh, provoked something that's even more intense than what it would have been if uh, your initial reaction had been more sober.
So a lot, I think a lot of what we attribute to ideology, to anti-Semitism, Holocaust denial, all these horrible things, is really just attention-seeking. It's just, hey, look at me, I'm so edgy. people don't have a uh, thoughtful, coherent political ideology. People just tend to have reactions. They, they feel something, they see something, they experience something, they respond. It's times like this that I think that we all need the dulcet tones of Mark Shapiro to uh, kind of settle us down. But uh, first of all, what does Richard Spencer have to say? This is probably headed for disaster, talking about Kanye and Nick Fuentes. And I'm not on board regardless. That said, there's something I admire about Fuentes, incessantly moving forward, taking risks, pushing things to their conclusion. Too bad everything has led to Kanyeism, but it'll be entertaining. Okay, but uh, what about what about Mark Shapiro? What what does what does Mr. Shapiro have to say? And let us let us learn from this great professor of one Jewish thought as we try to process. Are you processing with me? All right, let's uh, process together. What what the hell's going on here with uh, Fuentes and Kanye West? Welcome, everybody. Part three of our uh, Okay. We'll, we'll learn some Torah. We'll, we'll wash our souls in the wellsprings of Torah. If, uh, we never get it to play. Not so easy doing it all live. A lot of people giving me trouble. 16 miles under my belt. Three liters of water in my stomach. The show must go on. Okay. We did this earlier. Let me fast forward and get to the good stuff. So, uh, because he learns philosophy, he comes and he starts spouting uh, some ideas. Uh, occasionally, he'll say it. I'll say it during Kiddush or during Torah reading between the leaders. I'll whisper something to you. Like, hey, you, you really believe this? And he says something like that and listen to it. Okay, this is Mark Shapiro talking about how do you handle a heretic? And he quotes a rabbi saying, don't be so quick to call people heretics. And you could expand this to say, don't be so quick to call people you know, anti-Semites and Holocaust deniers. It's not absolutely necessary. 
Improper speech. And I looked. I mean, it doesn't mean I have, just because I looked, uh, doesn't mean I found everything, but I searched to find if any other Rishonim that means language 11th, 12th like century that. rabbis. Unless you can show me there are other Rishonim who use language like that, I am holding by my opinion that we're seeing Nivel Pe right here. In the, Improper uh, speech. Nivel Pe actually is a negation of things, but the Rishivish we call it Nivel Pe. So, uh, uh, and then he goes on. He says, Unless you're firm as a heretic, as opposed to justification of a, uh, when the spirit comes on you, whisper your heretic ideas, you're not old enough to call a scum or a mint. Uh, and even... Don't be so quick for people if heretics. you are an actual heretic, that is, you say it explicitly and you're firm on this, uh, we don't go backwards. Uh, we don't say that, uh, you know, it begins from this point on. We don't say Christ, we start to take this from our uh, sources. That, uh, you know, Sefer Tarsha cuts up a mint. Uh, we don't say that if he's a mint, yeah, that he's already grown uh, two years ago. We assume that, because we have evidence of it, we assume that he's only a heretic now. So, uh, just to tell me some read, like, this is a summarize of what uh, Jacob says. Here you see, he's downgrading the Book of Esther. He's regarding as a mere temple. He's condoning the study of philosophy. Not only are doubts and matters of faith tolerated, but they're attributed to the great ones of Israel. And I'll go even further. That uh, you know, the idea he basically is Mater here being a cynical apocalypse. You know, the guy who uh, I'm talking about someone who uh, kind of you know, comes to show that that's uh, his heresies, as opposed to someone who uh, is uh, you know a, a strong uh, a strong type of a heretic. Uh, and this is signed, as you can see, yeah, Asher by Rabbi Michiel. It's signed by the Rush. The Rush was so opposed to philosophy. He's the last person who would uh, support philosophy. We'll see another Shuba as well. Uh, um, even the Rush could have found for some people philosophy, but the Rush was Talmud only. He's like the classic example of a Talmudist and only a Talmudist. We have very few of these Old Talmudists also either did Parshanut, uh, they wrote Chumash, Nach, or they did philosophy, they did mysticism, almost all of them did. The Rush is like the one example I can think of, well, there are some others, but he's like the famous class example where all he did was, he's like the modern day Rosh Hashiva. Just Shas and Posty. We have no evidence of him doing anything else. So, and this is the truth that the Rush wrote, no way. This is an invention of Shaul Berlin and the Gnomes who all realize this. And, uh, so this is one of them. Now this it doesn't deal with what we're saying. This is more of the, the 
Lynn's heretical side undermining Judaism and opening up for reform. We will see soon a tshuva in which the entire reform program is set out. Okay, uh, we have some time. Let me show you another tshuva. Uh, actually, no, I don't have it here. Uh, I didn't make a copy of it. But it's 251. And uh, that's a long one. And in this tshuva, he deals with uh, principles of faith. Ikarei something that I've had uh, an interest in for a long time. Uh, in fact, I have to tell you, in the new Fakir, I just got it. Uh, this is uh, winter 2022. All sorts of good stuff in here. You all up on, on your Hikiru subscriptions? 107 to uh, 151. You have an entire Thank you. Uh, let me read you what Jacob's now summarized, because I can read it. 
Inside sandwich. Uh, he says, first of all, the Rambam says that he came up with his own reasoning, these principles, they're not combined. Us. Then he says, which principles are we formulated depends on the spiritual climate. And then he says that, um, like, it used to not be a principle of the coming of the Messiah, now it is. Uh, uh, the only true principle is that God has made a covenant with his people. He desires our well-being and happiness. That's the major principle, and he wants us to reflect on why we have to endure such a long exile. But this is, then he says, it's not, I have to read you this deep. Unbelievable, what he attributes to us. There's nothing like this in the uh, traditional Rishon literature. He says, if you can ever imagine, ever imagine, that a time would come, Shemishpateh HaTorah Uvitzvatel, that the, the laws of the Torah, will cause problems for us. The Jewish people as a whole, or even if there is, uh, you can imagine, or you can imagine that the mitzvahs would not give us happiness, not just that they would cause us problems, but they wouldn't give us happiness. We would throw off the mitzvot. Why? Because the basis from what all Torah depends upon, that because God commanded us to do that because He wants it to be good for us, for Torah Israel, and to make us, you know, above the non-Jews. But if it ever happens, He says. That we do not feel. Now he says, but it can never happen because, of course, the mitzvahs will always be permanent and will always be uh, uh, make us happy and uh, give us, and will never uh, create problems for us. But if you could imagine that this ever would, in theory, then God will not want us to observe the mitzvahs. Mitzvahs are commandments. So that's the rush writing it in medieval times, but now you're in the, uh, the 18th century. In the 18th century, well, certainly the mitzvahs don't give a lot of people happiness. They cause a lot of problems, and they prevent you from uh, integrating in under society and going to the university because you can't go on Saturday, all these sorts of things. So what he's done is he's given the rush. He's had the rush say that in theory, if it ever happens, that the commandments uh, are problematic and you don't get happiness, then you can reject them. And God wants you to reject them. But of course, this will never happen because the Torah is eternal. But if it ever would happen, God doesn't want you to be upset. If observing Shabbos causes you pain and it bothers you, God doesn't want you to be bothered because God loves you and he wants you to be happy. And the Torah is supposed to make you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy, you can um, get it off. And then, so then and Jacob says, the rush continues at length to convey the program of early reform as it was adopted in the late 18th century Berlin. Very concealed here are all the trends that became so prominent in the early reform movement. One, the Messianic age is not necessarily one in which the temple will be rebuilt. Theoretically, there may come a time when observance of the Mitzvot may become detrimental to Israel's well-being and it have to be given up. The reason why the Jewish people fails to find the answers to his problems is because it's overlaid the essential Torah with the practices it has made up. He, later on, the, the rush, in quotes, talks about all the superstitions that people have done. And then uh, Jacob says, all that is needed to give the game away is for the rush to use the word enlightened. 
but the enlightened to read the responsum could have no doubts as to its intention. I just think it's hilarious that Jacob said this because uh, I think Jacob was looking at the concentrating on the last section. Um, this is the way he, because if he looked at the earlier section, he would say, and I marked it, uh, or he, I, I guess he saw it, but he doesn't indicate it. He uses the word masculine twice. Masculine meaning now, the word masculine also appears in the earlier times. Masculine is here, bizarre, or Ikea. But uh, he does use the word masculine. So if you read the word masculine, not as a medieval usage of it, you can actually read it as, uh, as masculine, and uh, everything reads uh, you know, perfect as, as proto-reform. You have, as, as Jacobs correctly says it, you have all the elements of what's going to become reform Judaism in this very response. Now we have one more, uh, one more response to do, but we will do that next time, uh, and then we'll move into. Um, yeah, that's kind of incredible. Reform, you don't have to observe Jewish law if it makes you unhappy. I think basically what the, um, you can't be an open reformer. See, I'm not sure whether uh, Shaul Berlin is a reformer or just uh, someone who wants to tear it down. And when you see a chuva like this, it seems like uh, it's not trying to tear it down, it's trying to create like a deist type of reformer. So uh, Shaul Berlin, 19th century Orthodox rabbi, who published some major forgeries and this, this notion that uh, God just wants us to be happy so keeping the Sabbath keeping the commandments that makes us unhappy then we don't have to do them that's pretty radical but to an extent this is how Judaism works right even the most orthodox of Jews don't observe everything like everybody varying extents who is observant in Judaism picks and chooses and people pick and choose on the basis of how congenial these uh, commandments are and it ties back into Nick Fuentes Kanye West thing these people have come together because it's congenial for them at this time and place right just like a Jew may be fairly secular and then he gets married and has kids wants to raise his kids within a community, realizes it's a lot easier to do that if we're Sabbath observant, if we're Orthodox. Or you decide what kind of family life you want to have, and then you choose religiosity or lack thereof that accords with that. And so people make all sorts of decisions that have ideological ramification, but they often just begin on a practical basis, like Kanye and Nick are coming together on a practical basis, giving each other support, capturing attention, wanting to be in the news, wanting to be edgy, wanting to follow their thinking to its logical conclusions. And so one thing leads to another, just as one mitzvah leads to another mitzvah, so one avera, one sin, leads to another sin. So here they are, like two, two socially ostracized dudes. Okay, Bay Gardens. Very nice. Whew. So, some good stuff here from uh, Mark Shapiro. Tourist type 
Certain amount of bread is a suda. My question is, uh, a slice of bread. Is what, what, what about, can you have a suda without a gazayi bread? That is, suda uh, means a, a celebratory bread meal. Makes a suda, but does a suda need to have a gazayi bread? That's my question, and there's no big definition of my aura. So that was my question. I'll tell you who it was. It was Rabbi Abadi. And uh, he said that uh, he doesn't know. So I guess that's also good. You want most of them sometimes say they don't know. So traditionally, a meal isn't considered a meal in Judaism unless you eat bread. Uh, 
and they say things you might want to hear, but it's not like the Middle East Earl. He's in a religious Zionist world, and he's one of the Middle East Earls. So, Rabbi Yellen says the quote I cited applies to non coin I'm not sure what you're referring to. You read from Rabbi Mansour's article, but you actually read the part about says non kohanim Oh, I read non kohanim Oh, let me yeah. see. I thought uh, I was. I, I just saw it quickly before. Uh, no, it says a coat. Uh, no, no, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I, I did read it quickly, but uh, I, I found it right before. Well, here it is. A Kohen, look at the bottom. A Kohen may attend the funeral of a non-Jew if it is not held in a church or chapel, though it is preferable to avoid doing so unless the attendance is necessary as a social or professional formality. So you actually, you read the statement. Oh, I read it. You see, I read it by mistake. Well, thank you. I have to say, I feel uh, much uh, sympathy for politicians because every time I read, I listen to the classes, I misspeak. You know, I'm speaking quickly. I'm saying a lot of things. You're not written down. It's coming off the top of my head. It's so easy to misspeak. And I know with politicians, when they say they misspeak, uh, everyone uh, rolls their eyes. But I can tell you, it's, and most of the time, it's probably deserving to roll your eyes. But I can tell you that misspeaking is a, uh, now I'm not talking about misspeaking when someone says, uh, were you there? And they say no. And then you have the video, they were there, and they say they misspeak. I'm talking about uh, the other stuff uh, that you made. Mistakes can easily be made. Uh, okay, let me get back down to the questions. Uh, Thomas says that Justice Van Cole, I think in his memoirs, says that when his ostrich combined in high school visited the cathedral to see the artwork, he had to wait outside because of the history uh, You know, I remember him describing uh, going to the cathedrals. And now, uh, now I do remember, I cited this in my article on the Elizabeth Vincent's Chufa and visiting churches. But I didn't remember about him standing outside. But that is the. And he was brought by uh, his teacher, who was a. Uh, figure in German orthodoxy. But that, that is the minimum. I don't know of anyone who says that as a general rule you should do it. So that's why we avoid it. We don't have, but I was a little surprised to see the woman on saying that if you feel that it's important for professional or social reasons that you can go to a non and be matame for a non Jew. That's uh I don't know I don't think that another post game except this uh, that's what he says. Rabbi says most of our Bushel was because the kids were descendants, while with Berlin it's ancestry. Uh, yeah, no, but it, it, I, the issue was, I wasn't talking about Bushel, I was saying that sometimes you could have great forefathers, and we see what happens to the descendants, and uh, we don't think it reflects poorly, or usually we don't think it reflects poorly. Uh, these things happen. Uh, Especially in the 18th century, if you know everyone, all the great heretics were descended from uh, basically well-known religious Jews, because everyone was religious. So, but that's what the sniper says. I guess that's what people believe the Sarah was a forgery, the Zohar was written by Rashbi. Well, yeah, all the uh, the Rabbanim uh, know about the Sarah Rosh think it's a forgery, but they also believe the Zohar was written by Rashbi. And then there's the plenty of that's the standard view. The standard rabbinic view is that the Sun and Rosh is a forgery. This Rabbi Amar is an outlaw publishing this book saying that it's not. And the standard rabbinic view is that the Zohar is written by Rashbi. Absolutely. Mel says, Rabbi David Katz did a biography of Rishmol with Mugna a couple of weeks ago. Ah, I, I've only listened to a few of Rabbi David Katz's talks. I, uh, I highly encourage everyone not to 
Well, not to do it during this time, but he doesn't conflict with us. I don't think it's a problem. I don't consider it competition. We each do our own thing. And uh, I've already mentioned his uh, wonderful dissertation on the Bodhidharma. So uh, thank you for that medal. Many, many people believe that the Zohar was written by Rashi, even though they didn't know the Sakrashi Fortune, the two are totally unrelated. Yes, Mel hit it on the nail on the head. iPad says the idea is to be surprised that non Orthodox rabbi person with a certain crowd of being Jewish, a supporter of the land of Israel, etc., is what I find surprising. <laughs> yes, uh, that is true. Uh, Kelvin cites Philin. Hyman says that Professor Chaim Soloveitchik in his book on wine, he actually has two volumes on wine, thereby allowing Jewish lenders to actually foreclose on Stalmina to their deaths, which to his logical conclusion would actually permit drinking Stalmina while the Lion folks shut down. Yes, and as Chaim Soloveitchik has made the point, and also Dr. Katz, I think the, the Rishonim could have easily lied how folks got rid of the issue of Stalmina. They did all sorts of other things, which are based on less misleading sources. But the, the term that Professor Katz uses is ritual instinct. There was the idea that you would drink non Jewish wine was so tied up with the church, idolatry, and all these things, even if technically the real issue was. Uh, uh, I think you could also cite the issue of uh, intermarriage, but there was such a ritual instinct that, that they never could be brought to do that, even though they can come up with all sorts of other things. The only, what they did is when they needed, for example, trade for business, that they could find all sorts of materials for wine, and wine was necessitated. Do you know how much wine they drank? It was like, that was the main sort, that was the main uh, thing they drank, was wine. The amount of wine they drank, uh, in his uh, book, he has some of the figures they give. They drank at breakfast, lunch, and dinner because the, the water was dangerous. And it was a huge, huge uh, imposition and difficulty not to drink this. And yet, because of the ritual instinct that this was connected to idolatry, even though Hetarim were available, they wanted to go that direction, they uh, they did not go. What, what I that's changing the immutable is that uh, a couple hundred years afterwards, this starts to break down. We know that in Moravia and in Italy, otherwise religious Jews were drinking uh, non-Jewish wine, and none other than Ramon, Ramosha Israelis, justifies it. Now, the way he justifies it is the exact same way it could have been justified uh, uh, by the Malay Tosos, but they didn't. And the Ramah, he's not saying you should. But he doesn't want to consider these people sinners. Incidentally, I did a podcast. There's a guy, uh, Drew uh, Kaplan, Rabbi Drew Kaplan. He has a whole podcast. He has 100 episodes now, all on Jewish wine and Jewish drinking. I don't drink. I don't drink wine. I don't drink liquor. But he has a whole thing on that. So we did a whole session. Um, you can find it on the Ramaz Tshuva. But you can read about it. You can, if, if you're into kosher wine and liquor, you can listen to it. Tells us we study with Jacob. So, so the iPad says people are complex. Doesn't Rama Marai rush? I don't know how he's highly esteemed. Rush, which means Rama doesn't rely on rush, that's for sure. Thank you, Hyman. So I so privately pointed out, yes, I was, for some reason, I was thinking in my mind, I was thinking nimble with a base. So uh, we have lots of examples of this one. So anyway, you're probably wondering, you know, what the hell does this Mark Shapiro lecture have to do with the news? And 
Yeah, the bigger point is that uh, people are complex, situations are more complex. Uh, people react differently in, in different situations. Right? You, you don't want to overreact, just calling them all you know, anti-Semitism. Right? People are more than their labels. And uh, just as there are non-Jews with negative no feelings about Jews, there are plenty of Jews with negative feelings about non-Jews. So different groups often have different interests. And uh, and some people we think are primarily motivated by ideology. No, they're primarily motivated by social media, getting clicks, getting attention, getting articles written about them. Not all that appears to be so is so. So Mark Shapiro was was talking about uh, famous forgeries produced by an Orthodox rabbi. So a lot of the news is is fake, it's forgery. What what may look like an alliance of dark powers, not necessarily so. You simply can't sustain as a public figure, as a famous person in America, you can't sustain consistently an anti-Jewish attitude. You'll be crushed. And Jews are in a pretty safe, secure position in America today. So I don't think Kanye and Nick Fuentes are going to start leading some anti-Jewish pogrom. Loved listening to Shapiro. Just, I mean, the the sophistication, the learning, you know, the, the grounding of both secular learning and Torah learning. There is wisdom, assessing text, assessing personalities, assessing the news. Uh, just a model for a true seeker, you know, a mensch, a fair-minded, and uh, we can. We can all learn from that kind of example. Don't need to rush to judgment. And that'll do it for today.